Oh, that was pretty good. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point uh, Church. Great to see you guys. Thank you for joining us here in person. And for those joining online, always good to virtually see you guys. I hope you've been welcomed by our host. I'm sure you have by now, but glad to have you here. Well, let me ask you a question to start here this morning, and that is this. What are you, what, what do you know? Okay, not all that you know, but what is it that you kind of know uniquely? What is it that you're an expert on? In our family, we have some people in our family who are know some things. So we have people in our family who, if you want to know about shoes, we have people who know shoes. I'm not going to tell you who that is. It may not be who you expect, but if you wanted to know about shoes, we could help you out. We have people in our family who know about art. If you want to know about art or creativity there, we have people who can help you out. I can help you out with bikes. I can help you out with that if you want to know about that. What do you know? What do you know uniquely? Maybe it is that you're known for whatever, your hobby, your interest, maybe your business acumen, maybe your hospitality, your kindness of how to make a place warm, how to make people feel warm when they walk into your presence. What is it that you know? Now, here's the thing. Um, we have an accounting firm that we use for our taxes every year. And last year, uh, I would say that an accountant needs to be known for being able to know taxes, right? Last year, for the first time, we experienced some real problems. Our accountant, went, we went from hearing that we were going to get a return to within um, two days learning that we owed four times more than I have ever seen in a tax bill in my entire life. <laughs> I mean, I've had previous taxes that I've had to pay, but all of a sudden we went from, hey, good news, you're getting a refund, to literally, this is four times higher than I have ever been personally responsible for in my life. Now, I would say that an accountant is supposed to know taxes, right? And so how is it that we, as lay people in the tax world, came upon this problem and not them, because that's actually what happened. We found the error and not them. And so here's the problem with knowing, that when you know something, and here's what this story you know, illustrates, that gaps can form and that gaps between what we're supposed to know and what we actually know create distrust. When you claim to know something, if you're an accountant and you claim to know taxes, but you actually don't deliver on that knowledge in a tangible way to your clientele, it creates distrust, and it did for me and it did for, for Jen and I, that it took us a long time to rebuild trust with that firm, but we lost it with that individual. It took a long time because gaps that are formed between what I'm supposed to know and what we actually know create distrust. Secondly, this is also true, that really the more important the topic, the deeper the distrust. Meaning, if I were to ask you, because I think you know Mexican restaurants, where can I get the best tacos in town, and I try your place and I hate it, Nah, I'm going to have a moderate level of distrust in you. But if I give you my taxes to do and you completely blow them up, I'm going to have a deeper level of distrust in you, right? That the deeper the level, the more important the topic, the deeper the distrust. And gaps create that distrust. So here's the question I have for us, not just about taxes or Mexican restaurants, but I want to ask this question to you this morning. And that is this, what should we expect then from someone who claims to know God? What should we expect from people who claim to know God? Are you in that category? Where you might say, you know, I, I know God. I know who he is. What does that actually mean? And what should one expect from someone who claims knowledge of God? That I know God. Should we expect that these are the smartest Bible people in the room? That in Bible trivial pursuit, which I'm terrible at, by the way, I didn't even know was a game until a few years ago, and now I'm scared to play because as a pastor, you're supposed to know all the answers, and I get a lot of them wrong. Is that what you're supposed to be? 
someone who knows God. Oh, you know God. You know your Bible, right? And maybe if you're extra committed, you might even study Hebrew and Greek and for bonus points get Aramaic thrown in there, the original languages of the scriptures. Is that what we're supposed to expect from someone who knows God? Are we supposed to expect from someone who knows God great advice all the time? You're going to know what to do in difficult relationships. Is that what we should expect? Should we expect a personality of temperance, of moderation, that you have a high ethical and moral standards? Is that what we should expect from someone who knows God? Should we expect from someone who knows God that they are a deep person of prayer and spirituality? Is that what we should expect from someone who claims to know God? Because what we know is true in real life is also true in our spiritual life. That when we claim something, but our actual experience with that person is different or comes short of what they promise to deliver, distrust is created. That's just the way it works. It's the way it works with my accounting firm, and it is also the way it works with people of faith and people not of faith. I would argue that everybody answers this question. It's just that few ask it. Here's what I mean by that, that, that I would argue that everybody that you interact with and that I interact with answers this question, it's just that few of us ask it. Meaning that people, particularly those who are outside of faith or kind of looking at, you know, Christians especially, <laughs> will often say, well, this is why I don't follow Christ, because of the hypocrisy or the gaps that exist between what people say they believe and what they actually do. What they're saying is, I expect something from people who claim to know God. And when they don't deliver on the something I expect, a gap forms and I don't trust not only them, but I don't trust that which they claim to know. That gaps form in this space. And so we have to ask the question, what is it that people who know God should actually know? What does this mean to be a person who claims to know God? Now, the reason I bring all this up is not just because I want something to talk about this morning, but because one of the early followers of Jesus, John, brought up this very issue about what it means to know God. And in the great gift to us, he wrote it down. Now, I'm going to give you the entire message in the next three or four minutes, okay? Now, you're going to wonder then, why do you need to continue? Because I'm going to, okay? Now, here's, here's, here's the entire message in the next three or four minutes. Here's what John has to say, and then I'm going to walk you through the passage that he wrote, just so you know it's not just my random thinking. Here's what he's going to say, that knowing God means this, keeping his commands. Here's where he starts. If you know God, here's what it means, that you're going to keep his commands. Now, if you are a religious person or someone who loves um, order and detail, this is just a lifeline to you. This is so appealing. So knowing God, well, that's simple. Just keep his commands. That's awesome. So now I can line up my week and my day. I can order everything so that I can keep, I can do the right things. This is incredibly appealing to religious people. Just keep all, just do all the right things. Just keep the commands. However, John, I think, knows that there's a problem with this out of context. That when this isn't defined, it creates a kind of religious fervor and legalism and hardness of heart that isn't actually helpful and isn't actually complete. And so he clarifies to say, well, listen, keeping his commands actually means this. And he reframes it. Keeping his commands means actually living like Jesus. Well, why didn't you say it in the first place, John? Well, I didn't think I had to. Well, here we go. So keeping his commands, he's going to say, means actually living like Jesus. Now, if you're a religious person in the room, now you go from, being a, from something being appealing to now um, not very clarifying at all. There's great ambiguity in this space. What, is, what does that mean? <laughs> How in the world does one live like Jesus? So now you're saying knowing God means actually living like Jesus. Well, how does one actually do, do that? Because none of us are Jesus. 
None of us ever will be close to that. So what does that actually mean? To which he goes on to put it this way. He said, well, living like Jesus actually means loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor is actually what it means to live like Jesus, to love one another, to love your brothers and sisters. This is what I actually mean. And so if you weave together the thread of what John is saying, I'm going to put it this way. I'm going to simplify it this way, and then I want to take you to the text and let you see if you see what I see. You see? All right. If, if I regard God, if, I'm going to start this way. If I regard God, I know we don't always talk this way, but if I regard God, meaning this, if I regard him as someone whom I want to follow, if I consider God someone whom I want to follow, if I know God, if I regard him in high esteem, so if I would claim that I regard God, then simply I can't disregard you. As simple as that. If I regard God, John is going to argue I cannot disregard you. I don't need to memorize all of the Bible. I don't need to be a deep spiritual prayer warrior. I don't need to be incredibly hospitable. I don't need to make all the right decisions. I don't need to counsel perfectly in every situation. But if I regard God, then I can't disregard now, to see if what I'm saying is actually even close to what John has to say, let's go to what he actually wrote in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John is a letter in the New Testament. It's in the right two-thirds of your Bible. I want to invite you to turn there. If you don't own a Bible, the Bible in the pew is our gift to you uh, to have and to take home with you. But 1 John chapter 2, we're in this series in 1 John called When Love Works, just three parts in now. 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 3. Here we go. John is writing... We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Immediately he starts with it. This idea of knowing God, by the way, in the ancient world when he was writing this to the people who were hearing it, there was a category of knowing God where, in fact, in the ancient world, most people who would say, I know God, did not marry ethical behavior to their knowledge of God. Meaning, there was a whole category of people who were like, you can know God, and it can have no impact on how you actually live. It's kind of like knowing, you, you name it, knowing that NASA landed a rover on Mars last week, I believe. Like, I know that, but it means nothing in terms of how I actually live day to day. And in the ancient world, this is exactly what knowledge of God was. To know God would be like, I just know it up here, but I can live however I want. So he immediately marries them together, which is unique. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. It's a, it's a great start, but it raises a ton of questions. Which commands exactly, John? Are we talking about the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament? Because now we're reading at a period of time where the Pharisees, many of you know this, have taken the Ten Commandments and turned them into 613. So which, which commands do you mean, John? Do you mean the 10 of the old ones or do you mean the 613 of the new? I mean, help me understand that. And then to what degree do I keep his commands? Like, what if I keep 584 of them but miss the remainder of those? Like, do I, do I not love God? Is my love for God really dependent upon my ability to, to respond in obedience to him? What, what do I do when I fail and when I'm flawed? He goes on in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. <laughs> this is the gap that I'm talking about. He says, if, if you claim to know him, but don't do it, 
This is where that gap exists immediately. And there's distrust because you claim it, but you don't do it. You claim it, but you don't do it. You say you're a good accountant, but you're actually not. Doesn't do what he commands, and his language is strong. This person is a liar, and they need to identify themselves as such. To look in the mirror and just say, listen, I claim to know God. I don't do any of his commands. I just need to knowledge. Yep, I'm a liar. Hi, I'm Tim. I'm a liar. Nice to meet you. What's your name? This is what he's saying. I want you to be clear that this person is a liar and the truth is not in that person. Verse 5. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. I love the way that he puts that. To see that, that this love for God is made complete. I want you to see that. But he's saying that there's a, a way that this love works out in the day-to-day. There's this making complete of this love. There's this act of saying, I'm going to take what I know, I'm going to try to apply it, but it's going to become complete as I work it out day by day. That this making complete means that it's going to be pressed out into real life. This is going to be a process. And this is how we know, the end of verse 5, that we are in him. This is such, such an important transition. This is how we know we are in him. So he's clarifying at the end of verse 5 where he started in verse 3. In verse 3 he said, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Then he clarifies that at the end of verse 5. He says, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now, don't miss, don't miss this. Whoever claims they must live as Jesus. What should have been here, when, G, when John says, this is how we know we are in him, if he's focused on just the commands of God, what should have been here next is, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever keeps the commands of Moses the best is in God. That's what should have been there, the Old Testament. But he completely reframes it. He changes this. He says, knowledge of God has to do with keeping his commands. But just in case you're confused, just in case you were raised in a religious or legalistic world, just in case, and he was writing to Jews and and early uh, Christians here this time, just in case you have a heritage or history that was passed on to you that prioritizes what you do in your spiritual life, I want you to know that these commands, what I actually mean, what I actually mean is this, verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now, this would be brand new, especially if you were a Jew. And even if you were a Gentile who was used to living around Jews, you would know this is different, very different. And you would raise a hand in the back of the room and say, this is different. This is very different. Because we're used to obeying things. We're used to obeying commands. And now you're telling me to model a life, not to obey a command. To which I would say, this sounds very new. To which John says, no, verse 7. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one. You are? Which you have had, he says, since the beginning. The old command is the message that you have heard. John would argue that the idea of living as Jesus lived, the idea of following God's life and his heart, if you will, is indeed what has always been God's desire from the beginning. That the Ten Commandments were given as a way to help people understand how to live, not just what to obey. To which then he says, however, verse 6, Yet I am writing you a new command. Well, John, which is it? Because you just said 
It's not a new one. And verse 8, yet I am writing you a new command. Here's what he means as he keeps writing. He means this, that its truth is seen in him and in you. Meaning what makes this new is that you can now see it in Jesus and in your life. That was not available in the Old Testament, but it is now available. However, the new way of living like Jesus is a part of the old way of how God has always wanted this world to work. Not just that we obey a command, but that we model the heart and model the, the, the character of our loving Heavenly Father. Now evidence, now present in Jesus and in your life and in mine. Because, he goes on, the darkness is passing. Whoa, what does that mean? He introduces this idea of darkness. And the true light is already shining. What is darkness? I would sit there and raise my hand on that one. To which he explains in verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light, but hates a brother or sister, is still in the darkness. In case you're wondering what the darkness was, John's like, let me clarify for you. Anyone who hates a brother and sister, that's darkness. Now, let me ask you, when is the last time you have ever verbalized, I hate them? For real, not in jest. Sometimes I'll say, oh, I hate when that happens, or I hate that that happens, blah, blah, blah. But I mean for real. Like, we just don't simply talk like that because we understand the weight of that word. And so it's easy to run past this and dismiss it and not find a home here in my heart in this idea of hating people. I mean, hating is reserved for the worst people in our history, isn't it? But the actual Greek word here that's used simply means this, to have little regard for somebody. To have little regard it's the server who comes to the table who's anonymous, whose life doesn't matter. They're simply here to serve a function for you. Back in those days when you could go to restaurants, you know, people were allowed to engage like that. That the people who are a part of my life who maybe think differently about politics right now or the pandemic right now or about science right now, when their views are so different than mine or yours, they're easy, aren't they, to disregard? <laughs> oh, that kind of thinking. Oh, that uninformed. Oh, that bias. Oh, that leaning. And we just disregard. Disregard a whole swath of people who disagree. And John is going to argue, you can disagree without disregarding. But you cannot disregard people if you claim to know God. That, he's going to argue, is darkness. That is darkness. That is holding out to the world this idea that, hey, hey, everybody, I know God. Watch how I live. I hate some people, but I know God. And I disregard this whole swath of people who's different than me. But I love God. Trust me, I'll do your taxes. I'm going to screw them up big time, but let me do them again next year. <laughs> no way. No way. And so John links, if you know God, you can't disregard people because it creates a gap in our trust, not just of each other, but of the God whom we claim to know. And disregarding people is walking in darkness. And it's a terrible thing to walk in darkness. Look how he continues to explain it in verse 10. Anyone who loves their brother 
and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. Look at that picture. Someone who's walking in the dark, stumbling into things, unable to see. He says, they do not know where they are going, and that is such a powerful statement to me. The people who walk in the dark sometimes don't even know they're in the dark. And when I'm in the dark, I don't even know that I'm in the dark sometimes. That is why this is so convicting a piece. And this is why I so appreciate it as a check in your system and a check in mine. That John is delivering to us a very tangible way for us to know how to answer the question, what does it mean that I'm a person who knows God? Because whenever there's an, in, uh, an instinct of mine to disregard, to set aside, to alienate, to consider less than, not as important, immediately I need to have this check that says, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not doing it right. I can disagree. I can even disagree strongly without disregarding. Do you know what I'm saying? I can disagree with you, and you can disagree with me, without disregarding. I don't need to alienate you from me or me from you. That's too easy. <laughs> That's what we see all around us. That's too easy. For the Christian, the call is better than that. Say, if you know God, don't disregard the people around you. Don't walk around in that darkness, stumbling into things, because the darkness has blinded some people. And so I have some questions, because that's what I do. Number one is this. Who do I have little regard for? I want you to consider this question. Who do I have little regard for right now? Now, for you, maybe it is people who view our current um, pandemic, political, uh, racial, tense climate that we're in different than you and different than me. I'm in that category. That's immediate instinct of mine. It's, oh, the way that they're thinking about that is incomplete. My card's on the table. It's easy for me to disregard. I can disagree without disregarding. Maybe for you, it's about productivity in the workplace. It's saying, oh, they're late again. They're never here on time. They're just not getting it done. They're never going to be moving up. They're never going to be whatever. Maybe it's a laziness that you see in people like, oh, those kind of, those kind of people, right? Oh, those people. You know, maybe it's people who have different ethical standards than you or doing things that you would never do or never dream about doing. It's like, oh, those people. Like, oh, those people. And it's a way that we function. We, we put certain people in categories and just kind of disregard. We don't really think about them. And John puts it right in our faces, and it's hard. He puts it right in our faces as that kind of living is living in darkness. If you want to claim to know God, and you can't live in that darkness, otherwise you're creating a gap for people who are going to look at you and look at me and say, this isn't right. So the next question I have is this. Why do I have little regard for them? Who do you have little regard for? And the second question is this, why in the world do I have it? Why in the world do I have this little regard? Who are the people in my life that I have little regard for? And then why in the world do I have little regard for them? What is it that's underneath that for me? I want to encourage you to think about this question. The last question is this, and this is maybe the most important question for me. What will happen if nothing changes? What will happen for you 
if nothing changes? What will happen if nothing changes? Imagine that for a minute. Because we can go on living day by day by day, interacting the exact same way on social media that we do. Interacting the exact same way in our families that we do, in business, with people who think differently. Interacting the exact same way, because to be honest, it's the easiest, it's what we've known, and it's what we think is living in the light and is right. What will happen if nothing changes? Let me press this into three other categories. What will happen to me if nothing changes? What will happen to me if nothing changes? What will happen to your heart if nothing changes? Because I will tell you what happens to me is that my heart grows cold to, to you. My heart grows dark. I don't see it anymore. I immediately feel justified because I surround myself with people who will think the same way I do and think everybody who's lazy is a loser. Everybody who thinks differently politically, pandemically, is clearly wrong, whatever side of things you are on. Everyone who thinks this way, and I can easily surround myself with the people who never challenge me, and together we walk around in darkness, and we don't even see. We're blinded to the own darkness in our own heart. We do not see the gaps that we are creating with people who look at me and people who look at you and say, oh, they claim to know God, but look at what they just said. Look at how they just lived. Look at how they have little regard for people who are so different than them. What will happen to you? Let me ask this other question. What will happen to our relationships if nothing changes? What will happen to your relationships if nothing changes? What will happen to your relationship with the people that you don't really agree with right now? What will happen to the people that you don't respect right now? Do you think there's ever a hope for reconciliation? Do you think there's ever a hope that things can get tighter? Do you think there's ever a hope for that? Or will there be an increasing distance with not a clear plan for, for love and light to invade even the toughest of relationships? What will happen to our relationships if nothing changes? And finally, this question, what will happen to my witness for God if nothing changes? What will happen to my witness for God if nothing changes? Because believe it or not, people are watching you and watching me. And they expect certain things out of people who claim to know God. Just like I expect certain things out of my accountant, and when he doesn't deliver, I lose trust. And people answer the question even though they don't ask it. They expect certain things of people who claim to know God. And when we don't deliver on the most basic of expectations, we create gaps of distrust. Because, see, people who, people who claim to know God do not need to be the best Bible scholars on the planet. People who claim to know God don't need to be the best prayer warriors on the planet. People who claim to know God don't need to be the smartest or the most insightful in how to counsel or make the best decisions. People who claim to know God don't even need to have the highest ethical standards ever invented by humankind. People who claim to know God, put it this way, if I regard God... I can't disregard you. It's as simple as that, boiled down from John. If I claim to know God, the test becomes, do I keep his commandments, do I live like Jesus, and do I live in light with my neighbor, with my brother and sister? If I regard God, I cannot disregard you. This, this is as simple as John can be. And he says, dear friends, let me invite you to a future where you can disagree, but please don't disregard. You cannot see the same, but please don't alienate. Please allow your heart to be softened, to see that this is how God, through Christ, has treated us and bringing us close, even when we were far away. Now, next week, he takes us further to what it looks like to love God more than this world that we live in. I look forward to that conversation next week in part four of When Love Works. Will you pray with me?
Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to stop and step into this space for a minute. And in this cultural moment that we are in, our world, I believe, needs to see people who claim to know God treat each other with the kind of dignity and respect that they deserve because we're made in your image. And so that I, I pray for us and for our hearts. I pray that you would reveal any darkness that exists within us, any propensities or likenesses or tendencies to quickly disregard opinions, viewpoints, really people, because it doesn't fit with our narrative. It doesn't fit with the people who are around us and the way that we see the world. Oh, God, I pray that you would soften us toward this. Help us to disagree well without disregarding so that the gaps that exist between our knowledge of you and people's experience with us would be small. That the people around us would come to see and come to know that there is a God who loves and knows them no matter what. So give us courage, I pray, to ask these questions about who we are most likely to disregard, why it is, and what happens if nothing changes. Give us courage, I pray, to regard you well so that we can regard each other well. So Jesus name.